talking about that there is no partiality with God. For those of you who did Romans, you remember this real well. He says, he says, therefore, you, all of you, are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same thing. So he's just starting to lay it out that all men have sinned, right? And that there is no partiality. We know that the judgment of God is, rightly falls upon those who practice such thing. Is it right for God to judge sin, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile? Yes. And the reason is because he's a righteous God. What must he do? He must judge unrighteousness in order to retain his righteous virtues, right? Um, And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Does anyone escape the judgment of God? No. Now, you and I, when we read this in in our New Testament thinking and in the present we are applying it to just us right here and right now and in, in uh you know the unfolding history of things we say of course not everybody gets judged no matter who they are when we all agree with that but there's something about going back into a book like ezekiel and all of a sudden we start saying yeah but right we start saying, well yeah but god says he's going to save all israel and he's going to do this and he's going to do that so we somehow divorce them or separate them from the concept of that doctrinal truth that God says no man is without excuse. They're all guilty of sin and God judges all unrighteousness, period, right? So here, I'm just taking you back to see this again in scripture. And I want you to think of what I'm going to read from this point forward. Consider where we are in history and what God is telling us in Ezekiel 36 and 37 about what he's going to do with Israel in that day, how he's going to make a new covenant with them, He's going to give them a heart. He's going to cleanse them from impurities. He's going to place them on the land, and he will be their God. How do they get there? Same way you and I do. He says this, um, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, we know that's talking about at the end of the age when God is ultimately going to judge things and make a final determination as to where people will spend their eternity. He says, and all who um, God will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, theirs will be wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man, every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. Isn't that awesome? There it is in the New Testament. Jew and Greek both are judged in the same manner. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good also to the Jew, but also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. I just wanted to lay that doctrinal plumb line of truth down just as the very first thing coming out of the chute this morning because it's upon that premise, upon that, that is a, what we call a doctrine. It's a plumb line of truth. God treats all men. I, there's another verse in here. Let me see if I can find it. Um, he talks about closing up everyone in judgment that he might show mercy to all. I'll see if I can find that verse later. Maybe I'll do that one next week. But he, there's no distinction with God. He's impartial. And 
and because he, he judges everyone the same, he can also show grace to everyone in the same way. And that is exciting news. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for our time in your word this week and for just the way that you work through your word to weave it all together, to show us, Father, this beautiful tapestry of salvation that you have uh, in your mind and in the plan, Father, that um, the patience that we see as you work through these people called Israel that you show to us, the demonstrations that you give to us um, in the dealings with them, how you expect us then, therefore, also to live. And because, Father, there's no partiality with you, because you treat both Jew and Gentile alike, and, Father, even your, quote, chosen are expected, Father, to approach you in the same manner as anyone, whether they be of the household of the Jewish faith, of of those... uh, Uh, blessed and called by you to be a a peculiar people, a special people, a distinct people. Father, we too also in the New Testament who have faith in you, we are called in that same manner to be that people who loves you, who honors you, who glorifies your name. Father, this standard does not change. It is all about our faith and trust in you. It's all about our bowing our knees before you and acknowledging who you are. And Father, learning little by little how to follow you faithfully. So, Father, we just ask you now to bless us as we uh, continue in Ezekiel this morning, as we look at uh, chapter 37, to see the promises that you have for a distinctive people and how, Father, that is for your namesake and for your glory, Father, and that in the doing of these things, Uh, specifically for this nation, Father, you reveal to us who you are more and more, your faithfulness, your love, your long-suffering, Father, your almighty power, your sovereignty over all things on this earth. Father God, we just praise your holy name this morning. We thank you for this. Continue to teach us by the power of your spirit. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um. This week, I what we want to start with is just um, to systematically go through and and attack the things that Kay had us to, to do in the homework. First and foremost, general observations, right? So we're going to tackle those things first. We're going to look at those, uh, you know, the big picture of what did we what did we see was going on in this chapter? Wasn't it nice to slow down and just do one chapter? I love that. I'm going, yes, we should do this. Uh, can you imagine how long it would take us to get through Ezekiel if we did that, however? For, it would be like 44 weeks in Ezekiel. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot. And again, Margaret, do you remember what we talked about in part one? And I was saying one of the important things about Ezekiel is don't get so tangled up in all the details. And it's one of the reasons why it felt like it was so overwhelming is because guess what? What do we want to know? We want to who was that and how did that actually happen? When did that happen? So we, we want all the details. But in some books, and it depends on what your goal or agenda is in going into it. If your goal and agenda is to actually come to understand Israel's history, the actual events of history that happened, who the kings were, what place certain battles took place, you know, chronologically order it out, start filling in dates. If that's your agenda, um, that's a whole different kind of study, and that's not what we're doing here. What we are doing here is we have, we're pulling way back. We're saying, okay, who's the author? Who's the recipient? 
What is the author's purpose? So what is the author's purpose in this book? Ultimately, is that what? That you will know that I am the Lord. He wants you and I to know that God is the Lord. And how is he demonstrating that to us? How, what is he showing us so that we have that confidence? Okay. You get to see the. Okay. You were bad, so you are getting this punishment. Yeah, you are bad. That's it. Are, are you relating? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so God must be speaking to you twice. That's, that's right. All right. So, then, by the way, welcome back. We missed you. Um, anyway, so, so in this book, we're through the process of saying I am the Lord and demonstrating that he's that he is the God and the designer of history of man he has a plan in other words he created man placed them on the earth and then progressively he brings them to this place of rest uh, uh, restoration with him we started in the garden and what did we very quickly do we fell. We fell into sin. So now the entire plan then after that, it, it shows us about restoration. Now that's our focus, right? But is that really God's focus? It's all about you and me and getting saved? No. <laughs> that's where we go because that is how we are. We are so self-centered and self-indulging that that's all we see. And in this book of Ezekiel, would you say that until we hit chapter uh, 33, 34, 35, time, right in, the, in those areas. Would you say that we were looking at this going, this is all about Israel. It's all about Israel and God judging them and God bring, you know, bringing, yes, of course, the whole focus gets to be upon what they did and how God responds to that, right? And what God wants to do for them. And he keeps calling them back I, as if God is on his knees pleading for someone to adore him, Right? And the, the real reality of this is where is God seated? He is seated on his throne in the heavenlies. He is God Almighty. He is the Lord God. And so in that position, he is simply showing to us through this unfolding story of Ezekiel how he deals with that which he created and designed for worship of him. What was it that we saw last week? Uh, that God says to us very clearly and doesn't even hold it back. What does he say is the reason he's doing what he's doing? For, that's right, to vindicate his holy name. It's all about God's holy name. It is not about really about us, although we like it to be, right? And certainly God does love us, and certainly God does want relationship with us, and certainly he does plead with us, please come back, why must you die in your sin? However, he says to Israel also, you are a stubborn and obstinate people, and I am not doing this for your sake. I'm doing this for my holy name's sake. So there's a bigger picture in this than what we see. So if we start out in the book of Ezekiel, and we are so focused on all those details, and we're tied up in the details because we really are saying it's all about us, right? That's kind of what the premise would be for us to have to have all those details. Uh, and I'm not against details because I love them. I want to go in and study all that out too. I'd love it if I had in my mind a real understanding of all the history of Israel and who those kings were, what the dynamics were between them and relationships because I do believe history repeats itself. <laughs> so there's value in that. But Ezekiel does not do that. 
the reason we zip through some of those chapters so quickly is because God wants us to pull back and say, then you will know that I am the Lord. That's what you want to conclude at the end of all of this. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So he's going to show you this bigger picture of his, his character. So we saw in his character what so far? That he is holy. First and foremost, I am going to vindicate my holy name. So I am holy. And in holiness, we see the quality of justice, righteousness, purity, or, or, or uh, well, yeah, purity. I guess that's a good one. Holiness. Mm-hmm. Mercy. Over and over. The patience of God. He is merciful. He keeps pleading with them. So do you see the things that really you are gleaning out of this that that are almost subliminal but they become profoundly important and profoundly actually the first fruit of everything that we're doing it becomes far more important that we are learning about who our God is in all of this as we look at man's history we're learning about who God is so that's what we what we did in this bigger picture so far in Ezekiel then you will know that I am the Lord and then therefore you will know who I am what I'm about what kind of God I am, why you should worship me, why you should trust me, why you should submit your life every single day to me, right? All right, so this week now, I want to rein us back in and and focus on what we did this week. Um, We, Kay had us go through and do our general observations. Then she wanted us to determine our paragraph theme and the book theme, or the chapter theme rather, right? The flow of that message and thought. She then jumped in and asked us to do some word studies. I heard a couple of y'all talking about the word studies, and I thought that was a very uh, exciting word study, even though it was super simple. And uh, were some of you scratching your head a little bit going, now wait a minute, those are the same, aren't they? (laughs) Right? Okay, we'll talk about that. Um, Then another thing that she she had us do was focus in on this covenant of peace, right? that is mentioned in this particular chapter. And it's been mentioned before, this new covenant, right? So then what she wants to do, she wants us to link identifying markers about that covenant. I don't know if you caught that or not, but that was really what she did. She bounced us around to different passages, said, what is, what is he saying to Israel here? What is he saying to Israel here? You looked in Jeremiah, you looked in Isaiah, you looked in all the, and then she took you in the New Testament too and said, now look at it here and here and here. And what do you see? What, and it's exactly what I was speaking to a, a group of you all earlier about um, understanding eschatology better. The way that you do that is by, when you look at eschatology, if you learn who the characters are, what the major events are, what the timing of things is or are (laughs) how do you say that and then what you need to do is you need to line up the qualities about say a personage and say what does he look like how is he described what are the things that he does what is his relationships or dynamics with other people and once you learn all those characteristics and qualities about that particular individual you can drop in anywhere in scripture and you spot that person you go oh I know who that is right because you become so familiar are you following what I'm saying? You become so familiar with the Antichrist at the end of the age and what his dynamics are with Israel in that time and how he treats them and where he goes and how much time he has to do these things in and um, what he, the, the specifics of what he does and, how, and progressively in what order things happen. And pretty soon you know that guy every time you drop in anywhere in, in the scripture. Okay, 
That's what Kay was doing with us this week on this, stu- on this study about this thing called the new covenant or the covenant of peace. She wanted you to drop in Old Testament in a variety of places, starting with your, your primary subject uh, or your primary um, text, which is Ezekiel. conclude everything you can, draw it all out, make lists, get get a good picture of what this covenant is saying about here. Now open it up, go into other cross-references in the Old Testament. Now go into the New Testament, look at covenant again, that new covenant. What are the qualities and characteristics and the identifying markers of it? Now you can pull all the way back here and look at this and say, ah, is this the same covenant? So what did you conclude? That's what we want to talk about today. So we're going to try to bring this all together because when you're done, then you, what, now that you, the, the identifying qualities of this thing called the new covenant that Ezekiel keeps mentioning, now you're going to know what that covenant is and now you can make an appropriate application to that covenant knowing the next questions that she then takes you into, which is how do you get into that covenant, Right? What are the doctrinal truths about how a person has a, is able to appropriate the, the blessings and the, um, and the riches of that covenant called the new covenant? How can that apply to you? And we know how that applies to you and I. We get that because we're New Testament people, right? And we're all about us. But now what you need to do is say, okay, now wait a minute. When he's dealing with Israel as a nation, how is that same covenant then going to apply to them? And does it deviate or change in any way? Does God, according to Romans, what we just read in Romans 2, is there any partiality with God? Isn't that exciting? So we're going to pull this all together, examine how and when Israel will be grafted back in to its roots, and what is it that does that for them? What gets them grafted back in? And we've touched on this a little bit before, but this week's lesson was like the glue, that's pulling everything together, and it's also going to give us this, this understanding of where these things happen and how God is going to do them for us. And then what I did is I brought my old chart from a previous study when we did Daniel and when we did Revelation, and I'm going to show you kind of where we are in the scheme of history and what God is doing uh, with us and, and for us through this. So you and I can make a relationship of, of understanding. Once we kind of see where we are in all of this, we will understand it, I think, a little bit better. Okay, I'm excited. It's a good lesson. All right, let's start. Let's start with the pieces. Let's do some general observations. Let's first look at the bigger flow so far, which we, we kind of already did. But let's look at chapters uh, 1 to 24. What did God mostly talk about in those chapters? Now, Margaret, no cheating on looking at your chart. <laughs> I gave her a chart this morning. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, so what, what do we see in chapters 1 to 24? Big picture. Okay, that was starting, though, not in 1 to 24. 1 to 24 was judgment of who? Israel, right? It talk, if the most fo- was talking about specifically about Jerusalem. Remember, it talked about the temple falling, about the city falling, about those two sisters and how, you know, Ezekiel's to lay on one side and then another and shave his head. So the first, really the first large segment, which is chapters 1 to 24, is God is focusing about his judgment concerning Israel. So it's all about that final siege and destruction of Jerusalem because where are we in the time frame of 
the sieges of Jerusalem the, were in the second one, right? We're right here in the middle. There was one, two, three sieges. We start in those first chapters, 1 to 24. We're right here in the middle of that siege. At the end of it, final fall, right, of Israel on the whole, specifically of Jerusalem, Okay, so that's where we have been. In Ezekiel 1 to 24, it's the final siege that's approaching, right, and destruction of Jerusalem. All right. Then in Ezekiel uh, 25 to 32, then where are we? That's going to be the, uh, talking about judgments of those other nations. That is super duper simplistic way of putting this. I mean, I am really making it a big chunky piece. I'm saying the first 24 is about Israel falling, the final siege of them, and God bringing them down, and then he spends several chapters talking about how he's also going to judge other nations. Now, why do you think he brought that in at this time, and how does that relate to, to what we read in, in uh, Romans chapter 2? <laughs> he's never shown partiality. Even back in the days when Israel was his nation living on the land, was he, was he, did he show partiality against sin and, and how people behave toward one another, in particular how they behave toward him? Do you remember some of the, the reasons that he, he says in those, first, those chapters 25 to 32 why he was coming against some of those nations? Do you remember some of the points in your mind? What had those nations done? Yeah, they had come against God's people, right? And ultimately, because it was God's people, they were coming against God himself. That's right. And so therefore, he judged them. I'm going to judge them because they say that they're going to, they are going to uh, um, appropriate my land, right, and make it for themselves. This was a direct affront against God himself. They've defamed my holy name also. They are rejecting me and who, who I say that I am, which is I am the God of the universe. I am the creator of all things. I am the, the owner of the earth and everything on it right? And when you don't submit to me, you are showing me a defiance against my authority and and who I am. You know, whether you like it or you don't like it, God is who he is, right? All right, so final siege, judgment of the other nations. Now where we're at in Ezekiel, starting in 33, we are beginning kind of a new phase. What are we starting to see, though? He's talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, and now what is he starting to talk about? A day of hope, a day of restoration. So he's speaking about a day of hope that's coming. One of the verses, let me see if I can find it real quick. Do you guys remember where he talked at the end of one of these chapters? He talks about their hope. They said, our hope is gone. Right? Um, there we go. 37, 11. Thank you. That's exactly right. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. But behold, Israel says, 
um, behold, they say, God says about Israel, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. Now, is that a, a real reality for them, that their hope has perished? It, well, it, it has perished in that, in that moment they have been judged because of what they're doing. But what has God said about them as a nation? Future-wise. Is it, is it finished just because they're in this place? No. And so actually at this moment, they're, they are proclaiming a lie. They're saying God has lied. He's not going to put us on the land. He's not going to make us his holy people, his holy nation. Um, because if he was going to do that, he would have done it. But what is the factor in here that they are eliminating? <laughs> Thank you. Their responsibility in this. If they are going to be his people, what must they do on the land? They need to be representing who God is in the world as God called them to. Boy, this is a very powerful truth message to you and I as well. We are God's called people. We are his holy nation, so to speak, with the indwelling spirit right now. At one time in history, God's spirit, his presence was among his people in Jerusalem at his holy temple. This was all visually a picture for you and I to understand the relationship that God wants to have between himself and his people. His presence being in us and among us right? At the very heart of us, at the very heart of this nation called Israel was the temple of Jerusalem and God dwelled there with his people, but he vacated it. Why? Because of their sin, because they were not representing God in the world. Yeah. They were doing terrible things and terrible things against one another and terrible things directly against God, therefore. And ultimately his name was profaned. That's right, defiled, defiled and profane. So now he's going to try to vindicate that. So in Ezekiel 33, although Israel says our hope is gone, it's, it's, it's completely perished, God is going to begin to say, no, no, your hope is not perished because it's not you that is the variable here. I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord is why he is going to do the things that he does. So it's a day of hope begins to be spoken of. And ultimately then because of this hope, it's a future for Israel. Okay. So that sets us up then for uh, a real quick review that we want to do on what we saw in the previous two chapters, because again, one of the things that we want to do as an inductive student is to uh, do those identifying qualities, which are going to help us to um, draw a line of a doctrinal truth or a doctrinal plumb line so that we can't deviate off of that. And when we see those things, we recognize them for what they are. So right now, what God began to do then in chapter uh, 33, 34, 35, 36, right up until where we are right now, he started to talk to them about God's grace of hope, the things that he was going to do for them as a nation. So we want to identify the things that God has said he is going to do for Israel eventually, so that we see those qualities again. So let's, Israel's hope, let's just do a list on that. All right, chapter, go back to chapter 34. Just open your observation worksheets. And we're not going to write every single point down, so if I don't write something down that you say, don't 
don't worry about it. It's, it's all good and true as long as you're getting it right out of the pages, right? I want you to tell me, how, what do you, do you see God is ultimately, what would be markers that tell you this is what God is promising to do for them one day? Okay, there's all those I will, and he will do what? What will he do? He will gather them, okay? And once he gathers them, what? And put them on their land. On that land which he promised to them, right? We see that in verse 12. I'm going to do, this is uh, chapter 34 that I'm working on right here. Okay, so in chapter 12, he says he will bring them to their own land. And what else will he do for them? He's going to feed them, care for them. He'll be their shepherd. And he says literally about the shepherd, he says he will set one shepherd over them, right? Now that uh, statement of being one shepherd over them, drop your mind back in history, go all the way back here. What has happened to Israel as a nation They had been split into two. So the idea that they were going to have one shepherd was actually quite profound. You and I don't find that to be so profound, but there's the northern tribes and the southern tribes. So the idea, and then before it was Israel, the whole house, right? Then it broke into northern and southern tribes. We know there were 10 of these and two of these, right? And so at this time in history, when he says he's going to give them one shepherd, that's a real profound thought to them. They're, they're thinking in their mind, oh, that's, you and I don't even, we just like glaze right over that little point. We're like one shepherd, okay, yeah, Jesus, right? But they're thinking what? One king who, who shepherds them because that is their world. That's what they're thinking. He will set one shepherd, <laughs> yeah, exactly. One shepherd over them, and he, and he gives them a name, his servant who? Okay, so we looked at that a little bit this week as well to kind of get a little more insight on the idea of that shepherd. And then what else does he say about them? He will judge them. And he'll separate the sheep from the goats and so forth, right? And talks about nations, talks about separating, okay? There's going to be a covenant of peace. He will make a covenant of peace. Now, that's one of the first mentions that we have of this covenant, right? So I'm going to mark it off just so that we see it back in verse 25 of chapter 34. He mentions the fact that he is going to make a covenant of peace with them. Okay, because that kind of, again, it's a marker statement that there's going to be a covenant, right? And of course, these people understand covenants fully well. Um, so what we need to do is say, okay, we've marked that the, he's mentioned covenant here. We, he has mentioned it even previous to this. Previously to this, what covenant had he mentioned before? Early on in, in the part where he's talking about them being judged as a nation. 
Okay, the, the covenant at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant. And what had they done as a bride? Yeah, they had committed adultery against that covenant. God then goes on. He gives lots of chapters that, that expound on that. But one chapter in particular, he really hits hard on the fact that they were an adulterous people. And that they had violated their covenant vows to him, right? So we see the fact that here he's talking about making a covenant. Obviously, it's a new covenant because they've already broke the other one. And God has had to judge them for that, right? All right. So, and once he makes this covenant, once he gathers them onto the lamb, what else does he say he's going to do for them once they're there? Yeah, he's going to make them fruitful. Uh, they will live securely. I thought that one was really good, that they're going to be securely. Um, not be a prey, right? No longer indul- indul- uh, have to endure those insults and so forth, correct? Now let's move on to 36. We've, I mean, there's lots more than just that. But those are some of the most significant um, markers about what God says he's going to do for them. One day, when he brings them to a, a day of hope in the future, he's saying Israel's hope is going to be he's going to gather them and put them on their land their own land. He will set one shepherd over them. That's a significant statement. He's going to make a covenant of peace with them and they will live securely and not be a prey. Because what is the history up to this point? They have been a prey and they've not lived securely on their land. And right now they're totally in exile and their city has been destroyed. Their temple has been destroyed, right? It's all, everything has, they certainly have not been in security or safety. So now let's go to chapter 36 and let's see what else we can add to this. What else has God said to us? Here's where we see the fruitfulness really talked about, don't we? 8, 9, and 10 of 36, kind of. Mm-hmm. He talks about them. The, um, mm-hmm. Waste place. There we go. So let's just put those da- kind of things on here. Waste places. The waste places will be rebuilt. I cannot help but. What is that verse, Celeste? Ten. I can't help but but think about that video that we watched the very first. Uh, opening of part one where we saw the waste places of Israel right now already showing signs of life again. They went from being a swampy, mosquito-infested nothing, right, where God had literally taken the land and allowed it to go totally barren in his judgment against them, right? Now, what's interesting is just for a point of reference, not that we've studied on this a lot, but we know that this is, the, this is the fall of the temple, right? Here. The temple fell. What happened in history between what happened with Ezekiel and before Jesus is coming? What was back in place at the time of Jesus? The temple was back in place, right? So we have the temple back on the land. It's a second temple that was built and it was in place at the time of Jesus. But then what happened to that temple after that? Then we see that same temple. That's my temple. It's destroyed in 70 AD. 
So it seems like there's a repetitive pattern with these people where God gives them a chance. He puts, gives them, puts them back to their land, although they're not totally in solidarity at this point in history, are they? Who, who are the kingdoms that rule over them during this era here? We, had, we started with the um, Babylon. That's where Ezekiel is. I'll have to put it up here. Babylon. Then what followed that? Medo-Persia. Then Greece. And then Rome. Okay, so in the era of when Jesus comes, we have Rome, right? And that's what you're going to see on this little chart that I have written out here for you. We had previous to Babylon, we had Egypt and Assyria also coming against um, uh, Israel. We know that, that when these tribes were split, these northern tribes went into Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. So they had already had a partial... Uh, judgment take place for them as a people we saw this when we saw obala and what the other girl's name was can't remember them but it was and hobelad (laughs) exactly whatever those girls names were but it was speaking of the northern and the southern tribes of israel right and he said and your sister she went into her captivity in 70 what did i say 70 uh 722 B.C., thank you, my brain, 722 B.C., and, and what he says in Ezekiel is, and you did not learn from your sister. She committed all these atrocities. I took her into captivity. You watched that, and yet what? You did not learn. So eventually then God takes her. He begins to take her into, her, into this captivity in 605, and the final destruction was in 586. Right? It was progressive. Ezekiel goes into his captivity in five what? Five, five seventy. Somebody remember? Do you got it written down? Well, we'll get that later. I know it's five seventy. Uh, no, five seventy. Ninety-two, so ninety-seven. Right. Right, because it was in the fifth year. I had to add it in. Okay. So Ezekiel goes in 597. So what we see then is um, the northern tribes had already been, were already in their captivity here. Later, Babylon comes on the scene, and he takes the rest of Israel into its captivity and in, to now include all of those, including Assyria, who they are conquering. And now uh, Israel is underneath the rulership from this time in history forward. They're under the guardianship of some other nation. They never go back into their own garden. Yes, they go back on their land. Yes, they rebuild their temple at the graces and the permission of another kingdom who rules over them. Are you catching this? For some of you, you've seen this many, many times, and this is old news, but for some of you, it's like sometimes you have to have it repeated, and then all of a, in a different context, a different kind of uh, study environment, and all of a sudden you start to go, oh, oh yeah, I'm starting to see the picture of this. So it's really helpful for us to just repeat things, even if you know it, <laughs> okay? I do know this, but I just need you to hear it again from another perspective. So with Ezekiel now, we know that he's in the Babylonian captivity and the temple has been destroyed. It's not yet rebuilt, but it will be. 
There are some things that are being spoken of in here that we are going to see a partial fulfillment of. It's going to look like, oh, they went back on their land here and they got to rebuild it. True. We also see them where now in history? Do we see them back on their land again? Yeah. At this point in history, what was the year that they went back on their land again and became a nation once again? 1948. Okay, in 1948, Israel began to be gathered. Gathering begins. However, what we can say to ourselves is this question. Has these things fully come into place? They're definitely not safe, and they're not without revile from the other nations that are spewing these things against them. Yes. Right, which is what the lesson today is all about, is coming to understand what is this covenant of peace that's being spoken of. Is this a covenant of peace with the land, with the people around them, with what, right? Yeah. Uh, In Romans it talks about there is a veil over their eyes. Yes. That veil is still solidly in place. Yes, yes. Until Jesus comes back. Right, that's exactly right. No, that's good. And see, this is what, but you, for you and I as God's church today, this history is so unknown to most people. You and I are learning stuff that most people are clueless about. And you'll start to, to talk to them about these things. They're, they will just shake their head and look at you with a totally dazed and confused look. But I'm telling you, the better you know it, the more confidently that you can explain these things. And when you and I do things like what we're doing here, visually put it on a timeline, plug it in, give it a name, connect it with historical facts that are absolutely irrefutable, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. These are really helpful to you and I as we try to be persuasive. Not that you, you can only lead the horse to water. You can't make them drink. But, but if you're going to take them to water, you have to have enough... Um, doctrine that's known to you as far as how things happen and why God did things because that's always the question is it not well but why 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 is God if God is their people see one of the things that caused God's name to be profaned was their exile right why why did that profane his name right right looks like he's impotent and he doesn't keep his word and that he's not capable, maybe, of even doing these things. So how often have you had people say to you, well, if that's the kind of God he is, then why would I want to worship him, right? So for you and I to understand this history, really understand what the whys behind what God is doing and what those doctrinal plumb lines are and to connect them to Romans chapter 2 and say God's impartial and he judges every man equally. And yes, they are a special people to God. The Israel people are a special people. They are the apple of his eye. But they are the apple of his eye because they are to proclaim his glory. And when they weren't, what must he do? He must judge them. And when it comes to the church today, is that also going to be true? Yes. And if you think you individually are without without uh, accountability before God you're sadly mistaken the the new testament is loaded with passages that looks like we're earning our salvation doesn't it before you really understand sanctification doesn't it look like says well you have to obey you have to do, you have to live right you have to be good to your neighbor you have to whatever 
It almost sounds like you're earning salvation, doesn't it? But once you learn your doctrine, you find out, no, that's not how I get saved. That's what I do once I'm saved. That's God's work in me after he has brought me into this thing called salvation, right? So all these doctrines are, are just essential for you and I to really compartmentalize them and then lay them out on a timeline, understand the, the motive of the heart of God behind it, and also to put you and I ourselves in a proper perspective to this big picture of, of God himself. He is God and we are not. And that is ultimately God says, I am the Lord. The God of love. Yeah. Right. Very good. That is ex- But do, don't you think that having the knowledge that you have through this kind of method of study that this helps to really anchor you? Because otherwise, what happens to you in your spirit when people start throwing those things at you? Is it true that God has acted in righteous anger against the world? Have there been judgments? Have there been, is Israel been cast away? Was there a holocaust against God's people? Where was God? Where was God? That's what they would say, right? What kind of a God is that? Where was he? Now that we are in the midst of this Ezekiel study, what can we say very confidently? There you go. Right back to Thessalonians again. And, and the, what was the other one? Thessalonians and Peter, I think it was. Where it says, and the good, you're right, the righteousness of God, he desires that we repent. And his patience leads us to repentance. That's what he wants. But must God judge unrighteousness? Absolutely. So if God's judging and when God does judge, there, it is for his namesake that he does so for his glory that he does so. And the variable factor in here is you and I, is us each individually bowing our knee to the Lord and recognizing that, that um, his righteous judgment is right and that we, we must submit to the way that he wants us to live our lives. Or what's the option? Not have life, right? All right. So the whole place will be rebuilt in 36. What else did you see in 36? That's really significant to this time frame that he's going to, when he is going to bring them, uh, I hope, a restoration. Okay. The waste places will be rebuilt. Um, I will multiply them on the land or the uh, the waste places will be filled up again with them, right? I'm just going to put on here multiply. Multiply them on their land and rebuild it, of course. That's also in verse 10, okay? 
There you go. Would you say that's a distinctive identifying quality about that time frame when he says, I'm going to give you a hope and a future down the road, right? They're saying our hope is, is gone, is perished. But God is saying, no, this is your hope. One day I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm exiling you right now, but one day I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to put you on the land. Would you call this a second chance? This was a second chance for them to get it right. When God put them back on their land at that time of the Medo-Persian Empire, that's when that temple was rebuilt, right? And, and when the temple was rebuilt and the, land, the people were allowed to go back to their temple, they were, ha- they were giving an, an opportunity to have a second chance, but they, they blew it again. That's, that's Herod's temple. Yes. It's also called Herod's Temple. Uh, it's called, it's uh, the time of Zerubbabel. Um, who else? Ezra. Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Oh, oh. N-E-H. I can't spell Nehemiah. N-E-H. That's good. <laughs> right? So you kind of have to get, again, identifying qualities or titles or markers that help you understand what is the second temple? And you can use, put all of these things in, underneath that. And the, they, built they did. They, were, they started it. Then someone else came behind and worked on it again. The, when the people came and saw this temple, what did they say about it? That's right. If they had seen this first temple, and when they came back and saw the second temple, it just broke their heart. It was, there was no comparison between the two. So this one is David's temple, or Solomon's temple, I should say, because David was not allowed to build. But David brought all the, the things together, and Solomon built it. Okay. That's right. That's exactly right. And he built the retaining walls, by the way. So for those of you who have been to Israel, how many of you have been? The retaining wall that you saw, that's, the, that's Herod's temple wall. The wall that he built around that area, that's all that's left is the wall, not anything of the temple. Okay? So there's nothing left of the temple. God said himself, Christ said himself when he walked among it, there'll be not one stone left upon another. There was a mosque, I don't know what year, but it would have been probably back in um, 800s maybe or 600, I don't know. I have no idea. That's a good question, Elizabeth. <laughs> Research that, would you? <laughs> okay, multiply them on the land. And then, he, and then what someone just said was that um, he's going to, did you say, what did you, sprinkle clean water on them? Clean water, give new heart. Um. And what verse are you in for that? Is that 25, 26, somewhere in there? 25? Okay, I like what's said in uh, 27. What will he give them? Put his spirit within them. The dome of the rock was completed in 691. 600s, okay, there's 691. That makes sense. Okay, and then... uh, be, once he's sprinkled clean water on them, given them this new heart, put his spirit within them, then what will be the result after that in 28? Yeah. You will be my people. And I, your God. 
There we go. Thank you. I was hoping somebody would bring that one up. And ultimately, you will no longer profane him, which is the problem that you saw in the previous chapter. He said the whole reason that he was having to judge him is because you have profaned my holy name, and I will vindicate it. So they will no longer profane my name. You will obey. Yes, I will. <laughs> Give me one second here. I'm, I like having this stool right here for the bottom. That's helpful. Lois, you don't need it, I know. <laughs> she just is like right there. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, so now we've got some good markers that would be, and there's lots more detail, obviously, that t- talks in depth about how he's going to put them on the lamb and how they're going to be multiplied. And, and their prosperity that's going to occur and all those things. Yes. Yes. And what does that sound just like? Uh, well, there's some of it's happening now. Yes. Yeah. What, remember the, co- the covenant in Deuteronomy? If you obey, I will bless you and I will prosper you in the fruit of the, the animals and the fruit of their, their wives and the fruit of the land and so forth. It talks about the prosperity, the rain that would fall and so forth. So it sounds like it's almost going back to what God said previously. He's going to prosper them, right? If they will do this. And he says that in this time, whenever this happens for Israel, their hope and what we can already conclude because of fulfilled history, has it happened yet? No, we know that they are, although they are being regathered at this moment, there is no temple yet, right? They're not, they're not doing the things that they're supposed to do as Jews would be called to do, right? Which, quite honestly, should be a good indication to them that what? <laughs> There's no reason for further... Hebrews is going to teach us this. There's no need for these further sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus did it once for all, right? He's replaced those old sacrifices. But they're being regathered. So what we now know, just because of our perspective in history, aren't, aren't we glad for fulfilled history? What, how clear it makes things for us. The Jews were still on this end of things looking forward. I can see, though, how they might get confused, can't you, when this occurred? There could be a confusion about, wait a minute, we're back on our land. But what were some of the qualities that were missing here from that list? They were not secure. And were they even governing themselves? Was there one king over them? No. There were these other kings that were outside of them. As in fact, one of the big debates, remember how, what they put over the, over the cross of Jesus? King of the Jews, right? But... but uh, at the time when Jesus was there, who was over the king of the Jews? Caesar. Caesar. <laughs> That's exactly right. So what we can see then, by looking at a list of qualities of what God's promising them, and looking at the reality of history, we can say these things are not yet happened, correct? Can He was king of the... Of course he was, yes. I'm just saying that... But here where it says, and there will be... Uh-huh. Yes, I wonder. Wow. Absolutely. That is what, and that's where we're heading on this, James. And this is why I think doing all this is so essential. This is helping me out a lot because you're talking about 
and they all return back to build the second temple. Is that a partial? Well, they built the second temple, and it was then destroyed well, eventually yeah, here. But I mean, I'm saying, like, from their perspective, when this is written from their perspective, and then they all go back, can they look at that and say, well, no, this is kind of fulfilling what Yes, and this is where the problem is for an unbelieving Jew today. They're looking at some of these things and, say, and seeing some things have been fulfilled for them. They, especially, and for present-day Jews, they're like, well, we're back on our land. They're just waiting for all the prosperity and for their enemies to stop coming against them. And for, um, you know, they could say they have one shepherd, you know, Netanyahu or whoever's their prime minister at the moment. They could say maybe they have one shepherd even, but. But back when, so they're back on their land, they've rebuilt the, this I'm talking about the second, the second temple. temple. Okay. They're back on their land, they've rebuilt the temple, and it starts out not so great, but then Herod builds it up great. And Herod also did a lot of other building. Yeah. Yes, he did. That's right. Jesus came to be their one shepherd, but they rejected him. Yes. So yes. That's where I'm kind of yes. confused about. Okay, but you're at, but see our, do you see how you're starting to put pieces together yeah, though? No, you're I'm starting to fill it in and start in your mind when you do a t- this is what's so valuable about all these processes of inductive work. You do the timeline. You visually draw some little pictures that help you. You get a few dates in place, and you start to see, okay, th- and then you make a list directly from the text. What does the text say clearly? So we hit the place that we're talking about a covenant and one shepherd. What we need to do now in order to further understand it is to go to this next step where Kay took us into the New Testament. Okay. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not what my kingdom is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I'm mm-hmm. now trying to figure that you know, out. You know, even, even though it said kingdom of Jesus, the right. Jews were saying, oh, don't write that. Right, they rejected it. But he said he was king But he was the king of Jesus. Right. He was the one shepherd. So the confusion is what? I'm confused right. on you. Well, right. I, I, I'm confused on your confusion. No. <laughs> Okay, good questions, James. Awesome. And this is what you want God's children to be doing. You, you want to look at Scripture and you want to say, well, did this and how did this and when did this? Because what's going to happen, I'm hoping, by the time we're done with today, is you are going to have some absolutes locked in place with some real identifying qualities about them that you will not deviate from ever again. You will always be able to say, yes, but this is what we are looking for right here, Israel's hope. And what we're asking ourselves is, has this hope fully been fulfilled? And the answer is, not fully. It seems like there are pieces of, well, no, it just seems like there are pieces of it. We certainly know they're not living in peace with their neighbors. Is there still reviling against the nation of Israel by other nations? Oh, absolutely. So that one, we should put that one on here. No more reviling. No more reviling. Can someone find that verse for me? By na- other nations. Well, this is the 
you know, because I understand at that point, right? I'm sorry, Celeste, I had my brain on this. In 3429, it says that they will, uh, that they will no longer endure the insults of the nations. And in, and in 3428, it says, and they will no longer be a prey to the nations. So put those two qualities on your list if you don't have them. Because would you say that they are no longer a prey and that there's no longer reviling against Israel, their, God's nation? The answer is no. So although, yes, parts of it look like it's done, that the bigger picture, in full, the totality, do you think every word of God's going to be completed? Do you think every single thing on the list that he says he will do, he is going to do for them? The answer is yes. Uh, exactly. And then, and he says the, that key repeated phrase, and what? And then you will know that I am the Lord. Or and then they will know, the other nations also will know that I am the Lord, that I, the Lord, have done it. And I will, it's an absolute, isn't that lovely to know there are absolutes? I don't know about you guys, but that, I am a person who likes absolutes. I'm, I, I would much rather you say to me, no, don't do that. Or, yes, you must do that. Than to say, well, you know, it's up to you. I'm like, don't give me a, it's, I'm like, have you ever asked your husband what do you want for dinner? Oh, I don't care. That's like the worst answer, guys. James, don't forget that. You either, Don, and you, you guys just remember, if, you, if your wife says, what's for dinner? <laughs> Heinz says, I always know what I want for dinner, right? All right, my husband does too. He likes pork rinds. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> he's terrible. All right, so the, the absolutes on your list here, yours should be more extensive than the, what I have on this board. But your list that you have done for yourself should say, this is Israel's hope. That they have said, our hope is perished. But God is saying, no, your hope is not perished. He's saying, one day I'm going to do these things for you. Once you make this list of absolutes, now you can start to say, okay, have these things been fulfilled? One of the questions that will come up, though, is this about a covenant. What is this covenant, right? And so that was another thing that we needed to do. But before we can talk about that, let's just go in and look at the format, the flowing of the thought of, of chapter 37. We know that there are basically uh, three different kinds of images that are given to us that God uses as, um, as tools to explain a spiritual truth, right? What were some of the images that were given in this particular portion of the pro- prophecy? Dry bones and sticks and the breath. So there are three things we see. It's bones and sticks and breath. I forgot to put that one on my chart. I'm sorry. Okay. And breath. Okay. He says in verses 1 to 6 about the the bones what is he in the and because that's the first first 14 verses actually or the first yeah the whole first 14 verses is about those dry bones in general but we can break it down into a few paragraphs of statements what does he say again it's the i will right who is i god himself god will do these things what is he going to do yes he will cause those to come to life Cause the dry bones to come to life. Now, I don't know what verse you picked. I just picked five, but there's you, almost all of them say that, right? Now, let's go to seven to ten in our outline. And what else does God say? I will what? 
Yeah, I will send breath. I like the way that it's said here, I will send breath. Because then what you know is who is the author of it. It's not like they just come to life, but God will send them breath. So it's from God. It's something distinctive from just the natural human element of life. This is something else. This is that God is going to send. I will send breath, right? Um, And then what will they do? What will happen to them? They will be what? Uh huh. An exceedingly great army. Isn't that an amazing thought? And that's in verse 10. God will send breath to them and they will be an exceedingly great army. Then 11 to 14, what does he do? There's another key word in here. Another imagery, actually, I didn't even think about. The graves. It's about the graves, isn't it? So what does he say about the graves? I will open the graves or I will bring them out of their graves, right? And then do what? I will bring them out of the graves. And he will do something for them. What? Yeah, put his spirit in them, within them. I loved that. And what will happen to them as a result? Yes, and they will come to life. So there was a real key repeated word in this over and over. What was it? Life, 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 alive, right? And they will come to life. That's, I, I just picked verse 13. I don't think it really matters which one. Now, was there an interpretation given to us? You know how um, sometimes, you know, God, in his word, I love it when he does it, but that God actually gives you interpretation, right? Do, is there an interpretation statement in here about the dry bones, what they are? What does it say? And what are they? Okay. Now, do you think whole house was a distinctive statement? (laughs) Uh, Do you think it was distinctive in the mind of Ezekiel and of those who were listening to him when he was conveying this to them? The dry bones are the whole house of Israel. Because up to this point, where were we in history? A divided kingdom. And they had they really separated themselves even from one another and viewed each other even as enemies? Yes. And so what God, God says when he says and the dry bones are the whole house of Israel, I think that Ezekiel, maybe not so much, but possibly, but, but certainly wouldn't you say those listening would have bristled just a little bit. If there's an animosity between the northern and the southern tribes and God says, I'm going to do this for the whole house. Well, wait a minute, God. You judged them. You sent them to Assyria. They're, you know, they're beneath us. Those are the Samaritans. That's that other sister, right? And I'm certain there was some kind of a bristling that probably went on within their spirit about them, you know, the opposing team. But here, dry bones are the whole house of Israel. That's in 3711. All right, so now we know the interpretation. Now let's go to the next part of this chapter, starting in verse 15 to 23. And here's another I will statement. And what do we see God is going to do there? 
what is the imagery? In uh, 15 to 23, is those sticks, right? Take, st- take the sticks, and upon one stick, right? Judah. On the other stick, right? Ephraim. Now, that's interesting. Did you have to do some research on that? Did anybody figure this out? Joseph's son. And so, depicting imagery-wise, who did he represent then? If one was Judah, who was the other? The northern tribes of Israel. That's right. So, so Ephraim, if you want to, you can say northern tribes. For the purpose of our discussion today, you can write up here Ephraim. And then down here, Judah. Okay? That, and that will help you understand the two sticks. Okay? So he says, take Ephraim and take Judah and do what with them? Put them into your hand and make them one stick in your hand, right? So he says, God will do what? I will make Israel what? Make them one nation in the land. We see that in verse 22. So by, you know, to further expound on that, they're going to no longer be what in 22? That's it. No more divided into two kingdoms. And therefore, this is the whole house of Israel is what he's speaking of. He's going to bring them all together. No longer divided. Okay, we're almost there. <laughs> no longer divided into two kingdoms. With two kings, right? Okay, so that's this section. This, so these are the, the bones... And the breath, right? Here we have the sticks. And then the last part we are looking at is about the a king, right? And it's verses 24 to 28, which is the last little segment. And here, what does God say he will do? Yes. So... The, the most profound thing in here about how he's going to do all this, making, giving them one shepherd, putting them all on the land, doing all these things, and he's going to do this under the umbrella of doing one specific thing for them, and that is make that new covenant of peace, correct? Okay, hold on, let me see. Get my observations. I will make a covenant of peace with them. All right, so let's write that down. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And I think that's super important because it's saying he's going to make it with who? With them, Israel, correct? Now, you tell me. Now, this was not in the homework, but it, it popped to me when, he, when I looked at it. Tell me the, the, one of the characteristics of this particular covenant in verse 26. What does it tell you about it? Forever. Yeah. It will be an everlasting covenant. Now, in that statement, does that tell us something profound? And would it be, have been a profound thought to Israel? Why? Oh, not a conditional covenant. So it doesn't say there's any really, there are any conditions at this point, right? Just that he will do this. 
And it will be for how long? Forever. Forever. What was the covenant of the law? That's right. So in that particular original covenant, so, so what can you now clearly identify about this covenant that's being brought up that God is going to make with him? Is it the covenant of the law? No, it's something different. It's distinct. It's different than that first covenant. And when you go into some of these other cross-references, it says, and in that day I will make a new covenant with Israel, not like the other one, which they broke. Right? All right. Yes. Yes. They will, but he's saying he's going to make a new one with them. Right. So the Abrahamic is previous. Right. So it is also, although the Abrahamic covenant still. is still in place and they know it's forever, but they also know there's something else yet that God is going to do with them and it's in the future for them. They know that there's going to be something in the future for them. We, so somewhere in the future is going to be a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with you in the future. It's not like the covenant before. It's going to be an, it will be an everlasting covenant. Let me put a clock on that so you see that real clearly. That's a distinguishing marker in this particular covenant that you want to pay attention to when you're doing your list making because it is a quality that is distinctive, for instance, from the covenant of the law. Okay? So now you know it's not the covenant of the law. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And, and he does say that. He says then, go on in 26, 27, even 25. He said, what else does he tell them about this covenant of peace? It will be an everlasting covenant. And what else is he going to do for the people? Yes. My sanctuary will be in their midst. Now, my sanctuary will be in their midst forever. Again, now this is significant, right? From what we've already seen so far. What has happened thus far in the book of Ezekiel? God did have his, his sanctuary in their midst, did he not? But he left. So now he's saying, okay, one day I'm going to make a different covenant with you. And in that covenant, I, I will make my presence be in your midst again, right? But this time it's going to be for how long? Forever. That's distinctive, right? So it's, he's talking about restoration here. Restoring them back to the land. Restoring a, or initiating a brand new covenant. And in that new covenant, he is going to restore his relationship with him. He's going to be in their midst. He'll be there forever. This covenant is going to be forever. It's an eternal covenant. He will, it will never be abolished as opposed to the covenant of the law, which they came out from, right? That's really distinctive. He says again about something about David in there too, doesn't he? What does he say about David? will be their prince, prince forever. And again, how long? 
forever. Okay, that's really distinctive. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, have we heard that before? Yes. So what you can do now is go back here and you can link it to the time previously when you saw the same covenant mentioned. And you can now absolutely link those two together by identifying markers and say, he's saying about the same thing. He he said the covenant before. Now he's giving us a little bit more information about that same covenant. The identifying markers are identical. Right? Speaking to the same people, and he's telling them a little bit more about it. Uh, I will be in their midst forever. They will be my people. Okay, hold on a second. Um, Okay, give me your verses. In 24, he says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes. And then where's the next one? Is in 25. And they will live on the land and I, that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, and they and their sons and their father's sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Did you do word studies on prince and king? I didn't either, but... Yes, Martha did. Good. Someone did. <laughs> yeah, the king was like, um, the word king comes from like a king, ruler, prince, um, a common term for magistrate is what it said. Okay, so prince can be a king. Or a king can be a prince. A and a prince can be a king. So they're synonymous words. And the, and the word prince, actually prince had the meaning of exalted one, prince, sheik, governor, king, refers to leaders. Okay, so it's a leader. Or, or what about, where was the other one? Um, what about this? No, but would you say a shepherd is a leader or one who governs over? So do you see that what God is doing? Because we've identified this word here and its qualities, we're able to bring it into, cha- that was in chapter 34. And even in 36, some of those identifying qualities mesh. So you see 36 is now linked. Now you go to 37, you see the word covenant, and you see identifying markers, they all link. The, the use of the word shepherd, king, and prince seem to be synonymous. Okay. Okay, yeah. There you go. They were probably thinking the literal, don't you think? In the think of Ezekiel, where he is in history. I mean, at this point, he's probably not thinking. Oh, Jesus! They don't have a name for him even yet, right? Um, and uh, the seed has not yet come. Although, what we do know by looking in the New Testament, when we go into Acts, we're going to get to see a little bit more of this. But we see that when Jesus presents himself to his disciples as he's calling his disciples to himself, some of the questions are specifically related. Are you the one? Are you him? Right? So we know that they were looking for it. Now, how much they were looking for it at this time in history in the days of Ezekiel, I don't know. But it may very well be because of these promises through Ezekiel of a coming shepherd, a coming prince, and a coming king, that that is in part what built up their thinking so that in the days when Jesus did come and he presents himself and they are looking to him and even John the Baptist said, are you the one that we are expecting? The Samaritan woman in the gospel of John, we know that there is one who is coming. Even the Samaritans knew, right? Which are the northern tribes derivatives of, right? So yeah, we have, I think we can link the fact that then the king and the prince and the shepherd 
are just speaking in various terms about what this leader will be like. He'll be like a king. He'll be like a shepherd. He'll be like a prince. He will be among them and he will govern and he will govern over them. They sure did. That's true. They did. And Isaiah's only like a hundred or so years previous, right? So yeah, no, but right. Yeah. So they had the writings of Isaiah. They also had the other contemporary writers. There were there were a variety of them. Jeremiah is one which we looked at this week. Yes. Yes. Right. But, but on the other hand, those who will, you know, remember in, in Revelation, it says in those who, um, those who have ears, let them hear, you know. I do believe there was, there's the onesies and twosies in there that did have a heart just like Ezekiel. There weren't a lot, but there was a remnant. There were some who did believe. We see, we see Daniel was one, he and his friends, right, who were taken in the captivity here in the 605 captivity. They had already been in their captivity for several years before Ezekiel came and his uh, group. And so there were some who were recognizing it, looking forward to it, believing on it. There's always been a remnant of people of faith. That's the good news, right? The sad news is the vast majority don't. Would you say that's true today? The vast majority of our world still does not believe God's word. And they would look at you and I sitting here for hours, pouring over all these details and going, they're crazy. Why are they bothering? It's not even true. Right? Sad. So the people of faith will always seek to know truth and will seek to understand truth better. And that's by the power of the Spirit working within you and drawing you into that place. He draws us to himself. I love that. Okay, so now we have the qualities here of chapter 37 accomplished. Now we're ready to go and do what's called a topical study. A topical study on the new covenant. Now what we need to do is say, is this new covenant that God has promised to Israel the same new covenant that you and I are in with Jesus Christ? Correct? So she took us to several cross-references, including some additional prophetic words of Jeremiah and Isaiah. I think she took us to Isaiah, if I can remember right. Okay, so what we want to do is we want to go back and we want to look, first and foremost, let's look at a word study on that word breath, though. I think that was really cool, because that was insightful. All right, so we're going to look at Ezekiel 37. We looked at verse 1 and 14, and we looked at the word breath first, right? And what was your number? 7307. And I'm going to just write it, R-U-W-A-C-H, Ruhach. I can't pronounce very well, but that's what it says on my sheet here. And, it, and the, the verse I looked at when 37, 8 says, but there was no breath in them. Speaking about the dry, dead bones, right? There was no breath in them. So what, by definition, what is a breath? Do you need help with something? No, I'm sorry, I can't hear, but did you, are you having, oh, well, R, do you, Okay, just remember spellings of the original. Remember what we learned when we did our video? 
at the beginning of this class about the language? Okay. Do you remember what we learned about the, the, the rejuvenation or the reestablishing of, their, of the Hebrew language? Do you remember that? It had been compl- pretty much lost, right? No language. Do you see now why sometimes there are going to be variations and spellings on things? But the definitions are really concrete. It is such a precise language that they've been able to to uh, uh, reestablish it, re- rebirth it, basically, through this one man who God inspired to bring the language back to, to the people of Israel. So when you and I do these word studies on some of these things, we are going back to a language that was lost for eons, and they are rebuilding it. So sometimes there's differences in spellings on things, okay? But we know it's the same word because they link it through a number. Hallelujah. And the spelling, sometimes it's a C-H and sometimes it's a K and sometimes it's something else, right? Have you ever seen that? Like Hanukkah. How many ways can you spell Hanukkah, right? <laughs> I had that on one of my, you know, that little draw game that you get on your phone? One of the words was Hanukkah one time. Well, I kept trying to spell it with an H. It turned out what they had used in the, on the Facebook or on the, the game was the CH thing. So I ended up having to go to my computer and research it and get a different spelling so I could get the game correctly. I just laughed when I was done. I went, of course, I should know that. <laughs> How many times have I done that? Anyway, so don't worry so much about that. What you want is this, this number 3707. Now let's define it, okay? Okay. Wind. Spirit, what was the other word you said? Breath. That sounds familiar. (laughs) Violent ex... Okay. Air and ocean. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, emotion. That's interesting. Air, emotion... Oh, in motion. Got it. Moving air. That's good. Okay, so what, we, what you have to do then is begin to look at this word and say, in the context of what we're looking at, what is it speaking of, correct? What is its, what is its end result? And therefore, what is it speaking of? Were there any other good um, definitions? Did, you, did any of you find God affixed to it in any way? Okay, divine, divine spirit. I want to make that a capital. Manifested. I didn't see that. Manifested in Shekinah, S-H-E-K-I-N-A. Glory. Okay. I probably spelt it wrong, but that's close enough. Ooh. Never... Say it again. Never referred to as a depersonalized force. It's always referred to as a person. Uh, when it's speaking of God, it's always speaking of the personage of God, not an inanimate object. That's cool. I like that. Uh huh. Right. So now you're talking about something distinctively different, aren't you? Because if you're speaking about God's spirit. Then versus, which is a wind or a breath and it gives life, versus a wind which is simply blowing in the, in the realm of our world, basically, from the four winds. 
So what you can see then is this idea of breath can be speaking of a couple of different usages, right? You have to determine then by the context which one it's speaking of. So in this one where God says um, that, um, what is it? it says? He will put his spirit within them, right? So he, we have to go on to the next word of spirit in order to get this full picture here. That word spirit is what number? Oh, wait a second. 7307, same word? Okay, so spirit and breath are the same. Now what you have to do is, is split hairs. There are two usages of it. Number one, God's spirit. And number two, wind. Right? can just be an air. Could be either one. You have to determine them by the usage of it, which it's referring to. It's like the word trunk. What is a trunk? Put it in context. Is it a trunk of a car or the trunk of an elephant? Right? Or a trunk of a tree? Thank you, Lois. Okay, guys. Okay. That's right. So it's an energizing force that's within, okay? So let's put on that. It energizes. Energizing force. Now, if it's an energizing force, is it going to be God's spirit or wind? God's spirit. So you can start to see now, okay, energizing force is this one. Uh, When it talks about, uh, you said about four winds. Right, exactly. So in which case, the, the, that one is what? This one, a wind. Now, that wind was sent by God for a purpose in that text, but, when, but there, is a, there is a splitting of hairs between a wind that's just a physical wind, that God will send a wind, right? And another time when God spins, puts his uh, breath in you or his wind in, in you, right? Or his spirit in you, that word is speaking about God's spirit. That spirit has an energizing force. Um, otherwise, air in motion, which one is that? That's just the wind, right? Air in motion. Well, I know, that's, yeah, that is getting too complicated. In the context of what we're saying here, if you're just trying to, if you are going to try to un, uh, understand spirit and God's breath and what it does in the, in the context of Ezekiel 37, what does it do to the dry bones? It gives, them it gives them life. Can the wind, which would energize a windmill to spin, give you physical life? No. So there's the splitting of the hairs. One is God's spirit. The other is just a physical wind. So there, there's your, but interestingly in the Hebrew, it's the same word, breath. And it also is the word spirit. But then you have to distinguish Holy Spirit, God's spirit, or just breath and wind. Yes, exactly. So that's was that actually, I um, know at first it may have been complicated, but does that actually say, oh, okay, I'm good with that, knowing that context rules then for its interpretation, correct? So you have to look at every one and say, okay, well, now then what do I do? 
Well, I would say you need to make a list then on your wind and your breath, which you did in your homework, correct? So in the context of what God is saying to Ezekiel through this vision, he's speaking about the bones. And who are the bones? The whole house of Israel. What is, the, what is this spirit that God is going to give to them do for them? It brings them to life. And it will make them a great army, right? And then they will come to life and it will be the whole house. They will no longer be a divided kingdom. They're going to be one nation. And this one right here, 24 to 28, is most specifically when it's talking about the covenant. They are going to be his people. He is going to be their God. His sanctuary is going to be in their midst. This is speaking of what kind of life then? Spiritual life. This is not just talking about physical life, although there's going to be, obviously, they are going to have physical life on the land, but it's spiritual life. Okay, let's move on. That's another, that's another story. But you know what, Elizabeth, when we did our revelation course, this is why I brought this in because this is going to be helpful, I think, to see. The next question then would be, okay, now we've determined what life is. Life, we're talking about here, what kind of covenant is going to give them spiritual life? Would you say Israel today has spiritual life? From what we understand about spiritual life with God, the answer is no. They do not. They do, God is not their God. Not the full gospel message is embraced by them. How do you know that? Where did we go in the New Testament to see that they have been cut off? Romans chapter 11. And why have they been cut off? For unbelief. That's exactly right. If they want to get grafted back in, can they? How? By belief. So if they're going to get to be on, in the kingdom of God during this thousand years, what is a requirement? They must, ha- must have God's spirit, right? And, and they must what? Have a new heart. Now, how do they get that? By belief. And you're going to get that right out of Romans chapter 11, where they can be, I think it was in verse 23 specifically. I wrote it down on my chart somewhere here. Um, uh, In verse 23, God will graft them in again, those who believe. So that's in Romans 11, 23, if they will will have belief. Now, here's the, the, the question then is, what about, where are we in history? Right here, right? This is called the church age, Correct. We know there's a time in frame, and those who don't know, I'm informing you at this moment, there's a time in frame that is going to occur that's called Daniel's 70th week. This is what you study when you study the book of Daniel. There is an unfolding uh, history that's given to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar through visions and dreams. And in there, he speaks of a time at the end of the age when ten toes are going to come together, right here. And that those ten, when those ten toes come together, there's, there's going to be this coalition. There's going to be then come upon the earth at that time a rock which is going to crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And then that, that stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. That is what is this time right here. And the process of crushing 
takes place right in this time frame here. Okay? So we have a, basically, though, from the time when God is speaking to Israel and telling them what he's going to do, he brings us up, basically up to this time in history right here, where Jesus comes, the prince comes, right? It speaks about this time here of 70 AD also in, this is in Daniel 9, I'm going to give it to you. Daniel 9, 24 to 27, gives you this particular prophecy about all of history. And he says, from the issuing of a decree to rebuild uh, Israel, or, or the temple here, he says, until Messiah the Prince, it will be, and he gives you the number of years. And then it, then it speaks about a time when God's kingdom is going to come. But there's a gap of time right here in between. So what is this gap here called? The church age. We are waiting for God to fulfill it. Now, Romans now explains to us why there's a gap. What has Romans told us? Yeah. What, when will God come and finally do this? When what has happened? Say, I heard it. Hold it again. Yeah, when the fullness of the Gentiles is fulfilled. When the Gentiles have all come into the church and God has fulfilled for, for the Gentile nation the bringing in of all those who will be the bride of Christ, then God is going to, I believe, rapture the church out. I think that I believe, this is Katie, I believe we get raptured right? We go to be with Jesus. He begins this crushing process in here, and then he returns and establishes his kingdom. That's when he fulfills for Israel what he has promised that he will do to them. He will do for them. He says in Romans 11, he says, they have been cut off, but it's, it's a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And when that's complete, then what? All Israel will be saved. Why? What did he say in, his, in Romans chapter 11 about God's promises? They are irrevocable. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, Zechariah. Which we looked at last week, Zechariah chapter 12 and 13, if you go back and read that. And it says about Israel, two-thirds will be cut off, one-third will be refined. Refined, pure, which is saved. And it's these right here that are saved that will go into that kingdom which is that great army that he will raise up and he will put this breath within them. So let's go back and let's just look. In the, and I love it. I know I'm letting you soak it in for just a second. For those of you who did Revelation, this is just old news. We've done this a million times. But for those of you who didn't, this is very exciting. And it's very, it helps to clarify things a little bit. Why are we in this interim time? That doesn't seem to fit Daniel's 70 weeks. What is the parentheses in here? What's the break? Well, the break is you and me. The patience of God waiting for the Gentiles to fully come in. That God's church, that the bride of Christ would be brought to its fullness. And then God will save all Israel in that day. 
but how does he go about doing it? Does he do it at violation of his principles of this covenant of peace? So what do we know about his covenant of peace? So that's where we need to go and look at those. We'll look at those very quickly. We've got like five minutes. Uh, Lisa, did you have a, a question or a point? Yes. Yeah. There's always been a plan. Yes. And in that plan, when it's fulfilled, when God does it, it will do what? It will vindicate his holy name, which we have, have profaned in the world. We who are supposed to be his people living in an upright manner, um, representing who our covenant partner is to the world of patience and love and forbearance and all these things that we're supposed to have, these qualities of who God is. Also, the verbal proclamation of he is the Lord. I mean, this is, these are the things which God wants to um, bring back, and he will have them back. He, his, his name will be vindicated. He says, and how is he doing it? He's doing it by righteously dealing equally with all men, as he says in Romans chapter two, that he's impartial. Yes, he has a chosen people and he's going to use them for his purpose. You and I are a chosen people and he will use us for our purpose. But along the way, he also crushes, destroys, judges people who won't bow the knee not because he's mean, not because he's a big bully in the world, not because, you know, he's a God that's not worthy, but why? Because he's just, because he's holy, because he, righteousness must judge unrighteousness in order to retain its righteousness. And so this is who we get to see about who are, and then you will know that I am the Lord. It's awesome. Um, America as a nation, absolutely it does. And do you think, do you think all the nations, what did we learn about Edom the last couple of chapters? What will God do to Edom one day? And why will they be judged? That's right. Constant defiance against God and saying those are, you know, coming against them. Yes, he should have. It all started with Esau's rejection of God. Yes. Okay. Um, when Jesus is ridden into, is riding into Jerusalem the mm-hmm. last time. Yes, I love that. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather you, gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. Are you okay, Margaret? She took a slip there. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're getting so short. I hate it that we aren't going to get to elaborate a whole lot on this. But who receives this life, this breath of God that is being spoken of concerning Israel? And also, this applies to you and I, too, because it's a covenant. What covenant is this actually speaking of? The new covenant of faith. And who, who establishes that covenant? What did you see when you looked in John 14 and so forth? 
Jesus does. Luke. Luke 22, 14 to 20 in particular was an excellent one. The new covenant is in Jesus. And when he speaks of that one in Luke, he says of the, of the cup that they were drinking at that meal, he says, now this cup is what? Is my blood for you, right? And he says, and my body, the bread is my body. And he says, when you do this, do it, what? In remembrance of me. So the blood of the new covenant was, was inaugurated, was cut for us in Jesus Christ. So he is the new covenant. And how do we know that? What happens when you believe and put your faith on Jesus Christ? What did he promise to give? The Holy Spirit. So as you looked at those verses in John 14, 15 to 7, if you love me and if you obey me, then I will give you my spirit, right? And then he uh, expounds on that, and he defines that spirit as being the Holy Spirit, being the helper, being that which abides where? In them. Is that not what he says to Israel? One day I am going to put my spirit in you and bring you to life, right? That's eternal life. Um, We saw in Ephesians, right, uh, chapter 113 and 14, who receives... The Holy Spirit. Who gets to receive the Holy Spirit? Pardon? Believers. Believers. And those who believe the gospel message will receive that Holy Spirit, right? So would you say then the church are recipients of this same covenant that God is speaking of? And for us, it's happened. And now if you tie in Romans chapter 11, what you see is of concerning Israel, the nation, they have temporarily being cut off while God is doing what? Grafting us, the the Gentiles, in. Now, can a Jewish person today be saved? And if they get saved today, before God begins this this end-time crushing and dealing with, with the nation on the whole, what happens to a Jew who becomes a believer right now, today? They are part of the church. They become a believer, but they are part of the church. That's the only distinguishing mark. Now, one day, God will deal with the nation, and he'll do it in that day, during that time frame, which he prophesied through Daniel, through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, all these times, all these things. And he says, and every word of my word will be fulfilled. Okay, the David 